I'm Joe Forish, and this is You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. We talk about data, analytics, and its impact on business and society. We are the podcast for the Analytics Impact Network. Please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org. What's the proper context to evaluate data? How valuable is information that's at your fingertips? And finally, on a sad note, the art of questioning has been lost. My guest today is Kevin Hannigan. Kevin is the Chief Learning Officer at Click, a data integration and analytics company. He is also the chair of the advisory board at the Data Literacy Project, as well as a professor, frequent lecturer, and author on all topics related to data literacy. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Excited. I'm very excited as well. I wanted to let our listeners know that we had a very, very difficult time getting the audio and video set up before our broadcast today. It probably took us about, mm, I'm going to say 20 minutes. It's <laughs> which, a good icebreaker though, right? It, kicks, it gets all the jiggles out and everything. So now it's just, now we're right in go mode. Yeah, I mean, which which for our, our audience, you know, hope, hope not to turn to listen to us that we couldn't get the audio figured out for <laughs> two data guys, but there you go. So there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. And before we get into the real, real nitty gritty, I just want to do an overview of you know, what you're doing now as the chief learning officer at Click. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, chief learning officer at Click, Click is a data integration, data analytics software company. And really what we do is we help organizations um, leverage their data to make better insights, better decisions, increase the value. And you know, a special component of that is obviously teaching people how to use our product. But what we're realizing is there's so much data available to people that there's a lot of blockers that get in the way. Like, do they have the right access? Do they have the right processes and culture? Do they have the right technology? But even beyond that, do, do they have the right mindset to work with data? Are they challenging their assumptions? Are they using critical thinking? Do they know how to communicate? Do they know how to listen when they're trying to require gatherment, uh, requirements gathering? So a lot of my job, I, I have the luxury of working with internal employees and customers alike and, and helping educate them on this journey of how to you know, make value out of their data. And, what I love is part of it's technical, part of it's around data strategy, data governance, part of it's around analytics, but a good part of it is around soft skills and mindset change, which um, is kind of a paradox, I guess, because it's a it's a data course, but we're, we're teaching on challenging assumptions and how do you mitigate bias? So it sounds like there's a lot of hard skills, but there's also a lot of soft skills that go hand in hand. And I would even say the soft skills are probably more important because things change all the time. So the hard skills, I mean, I make a joke and I'm dating myself, but you know, when I was in university, cloud was a meteorology class. Now it's an IT <laughs> and I was a computer science program uh, major And the programming language I learned is now dead. So you definitely need to upskill with the, with the hard skills, but they're always going to be net new ones you have to learn. But these kind of forever soft skills, like challenging your assumptions, actively listening, resilience, critical thinking, like they're pervasive, they're always there. So I like to start with those and then teach people the ability to continuously learn and learn those hard skills. But you're, you're right, it is a good combination of both of them. And in terms of you know, both the skills, 
how has the pandemic either slowed down or increased the speed of adoption for these? Well, what's interesting is it's it's highlighted a few things. I mean, one of the things we talk about with with the soft skills is, you know, when you're working with data and you're trying, it's all about making predictions and predictability about the future. But many times it's it's hard because you can't predict the future. So you can say, you know, if you rolled the dice 50 times, this is the percentage of would come up with a certain number, but that goes out the window when someone changes the dice from a six-sided dice to a 10-sided dice. And that's kind of what COVID did is Mm -hmm. everyone's working at home, people's business models changed, everyone went to um, some level of digital transformation. I just had to pick my... um, my dog up from the vet and like, we don't go into the office anymore. We, we sit in the car and they kick the dog out. I'm like, this should stay forever. This is great. It's like, I don't <laughs> have to wait in the, in every business transformed and they needed to use data to do that. But it, it was these soft skills of being able to understand how to get over stress, right? We're all stressed. We're all nervous about the pandemic, get over how do we efficiently work at home and do a proper work home balance of, of life. And I think like resilience and just understanding those types of soft skills came in really handy. And then people realized that there's probably a, a good portion of us that need a tune-up on those, so to speak. And mentioning tune-ups, I've read through a lot of your posts on your site for your company, and there's a lot of good material out there. And I'll include a link in the show notes so the listeners could have a look. Uh, one of the articles was about the lost art of questioning. Yep. And it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. It's, and I, you know, someone asked me, it's like, why do you call it the lost art of questioning if, if your premise is we never had it? And, and I, maybe I didn't say it implicitly in the blog. We have it as kids. I mean, I don't know how many times my kids would say why, like they say it all the time. That's how they learn is they question. They don't have a mental model of how the world works and their environment and, and their questioning. But then, as I say, we go into like regular primary, secondary school and the models kind of flipped as we, we teach facts and figures and we're not really taught to question. So we're taught to remember things. And as I said before, like things change so fast. Yes, I still remember Columbus sailed the ocean in 1400. Was it 1482? Maybe I don't remember. But I, the point is, I can look it up on Google now, right? I, I don't need to remember that. What I need to remember is how do I apply these things? And, and so then we go to business and we go to work. And sometimes we see questioning as a negative, like we don't want to question our boss. We don't want, or we have groupthink where everyone agrees except me. I don't want to be the guy that, the, the person that brings everyone down and challenges this. So we have this culture where we kind of just go with the flow. And then when we do want to question, you know, whichever side you are on the political spectrum, there's always misinformation out there on the news. We don't know how to question it. And so we're living in this world where we see all this data. Some of it is deliberately unintentional, but most times in business, it's not deliberate. It's just an alternate fact. It, it's, it's something that can be used to make a case for something that doesn't exist. And we don't know how to question. Questioning means it's not so much the art of what question do I ask? It's the art of, will I question it? Will I challenge it? Can you clarify what you mean? Um, can you give me an example of how that's a, pr- a true statement? Usually we just tend to believe what we see and take it as truth. And then when we're exposed to that more and more, 
it becomes built into our mental model. And then someone comes with a different opinion are the way we were, you know, humans, right? Our brains innately just say no, because it goes against what you've already believed, even though the latter one might be the true statement. So questioning is about critical thinking. It's about, you know, with data, someone comes to you and says, I need you to build a dashboard. I need to understand how sales are doing. Well, that just opened about a million questions in my mind that I need to be asking that person. Like, what does success look like? What are the different dimensions you want to slice it through? What do you want to do with this data? What, what if, what organizational goals this tied to? Um, and I just feel we, we, as a society, lost that ability to question pretty much anything. Obviously, there's exceptions to that, but in the most part, it's, that's why it's a lost art is we have it as kids and then through school and through work, we just kind of phase out of it. And now we have to question everything we see and we're not good at it. And there's a lot more in that response that I want to touch upon a little bit further. The fact that if you don't know a fact about something, you could pick up your phone and ask Google or go to Wikipedia. And I've always wondered if information is at my fingertips or your fingertips or anyone's fingertips, how good is that information? Exactly. So go back 20 years, you, you needed to do a paper for your history assignment. You asked your parents, or maybe through however old you are, you asked your parents to drive you to the library, you went and you took out the encyclopedia. No one questioned what was in the encyclopedia. That's right. Partly because they were seen as they're always right, and partly because stuff didn't change that often. Mm-hmm. Now you go online, what level of truth is out there? I mean, do you trust Wikipedia? Usually, right? But it's crowdsourced. Are there rules in place that you know prevent if something's wrong? Or you go on news sites and you hear different opinions where they're using alternate facts and data. It's just a different world out there now. Not to get into a discourse of one side versus the other, but it's a really difficult task to identify what's really true out there. Yes, it's near impossible. And part of that is the, the way our brains have evolved and, and we have you know these shortcuts and these mental models, but partly mm-hmm. it's because I think there's a fallacy out there. And I, you know, I was a math major, so I was taught always there's one right answer. When does two plus two ever not equal four. Mm-hmm. So you're brainwashed and there is a right or wrong answer and, and it's numbers. And when we think of data, a lot of people think of it just as numbers. Data is anything, it's evidence, it's information, it's statements, but we kind of have this bias that data, there's only one truth to it. And going back to the questioning, that's true if you know what question you want to ask it. And if it's the right question that you ask of it. So many times when we are making decisions and we see information um, lead us down a certain path. It's not that the data is wrong. It's that we don't see the problem systemically. So we don't see the context of what other data could be attributed to this or what else is in my brain that's leading me down this path of making a less than ideal decision. Meaning we, we all have the same data. The data is not lying, but my interpretation of what it means can be very different than yours based off of my background, my beliefs, my exposures, my experiences, um, I may have an assumption that is completely wrong. Um, And unless I actually state that assumption explicitly, no one knows that I have that. And then they they don't know why I'm off. They can't correct it. They just treat it to be true. Yeah, there's so many moving pieces, but it seems like if one out of the five are wrong, then all five are wrong. Absolutely. For me, that's sad. 
I don't know how you feel about that. Well, it's sad. I'll, I'll give you, I know, I know we talk, we talk a lot about business and stuff, but I'll give you a yeah. personal example because people listening, you know, this affects what we're talking about affects everyday life. So I have four kids and one of them has special needs. And so way years ago, and I think it was second grade, um, we had a school meeting where they, they were concerned that his um, behaviors kept spiking and behaviors are like dangerous, destructive, non-compliance, aggression, stuff like that. And so what you do in the school system is you, you capture data that you call it an ABC. What was the behavior? That's the B. What was the antecedent? That's the A. What was the consequence? That's the C. And so they call us together. And the data didn't lie. The facts were the facts. But being a little more data literate, I knew enough to say, well, context matters. So can you add in a timestamp? When is this happening? Because my hypothesis is if it happens on a Monday, then maybe it's because he had a long weekend and, you know, it's inflexible and, you know, he does better once he's in the routine for a couple of days, or if it happens right after lunch, that's unstructured times. So they go back in, they add all the, the times in, um, they showed the data, it's continuing to spike. And again, the facts are the facts. They didn't lie. What was really fascinating is their decision was they wanted to give him a one-on-one aid. Not that I wanted to avoid that, but I wanted to understand why, because that was the question, is that their insights were behaviors are spiking, he needs an aid. So I said, can you just share me the data? So we looked at the data and I had this kind of, I love when we have these aha moments and everything makes sense. And I saw that every time there was a behavior, the consequence was he a certain behavior, there was a consequence that he would go to the principal's office he sit there for like an hour. So I have this big smile and, and everyone's like, what are you, why are you smiling? This is, this is a sad subject, right? Like, this is the problem. You saw all of the data, but you went through your decision-making process. And the fatal flaw was you had an assumption that every kid does not like going to the principal. It's seen as a negative. My son loves going to the principal. So I, I need, you need to validate, right? That was my heart. So I come home asked and he's like dad it was great I, I kicked this this teacher and they sent me to the principal and she read to me for an hour I'm gonna punch her tomorrow and if that doesn't explain the data didn't lie but through that process we didn't challenge the assumption and in data had no reason to challenge like we've never seen a kid that likes adult stimulation before or adult tension like well you never met my kid but at the same time it, the world's changing so fast you're always going to have a first so you can't just assume things so the whole process fails when you do that assumption and we do that all the time in business. Right. And your son was operating with a totally different assumption than everyone at the school, the school districts, and possibly you. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And that's why it's fascinating to understand that. And just the mindset, he's like, wow, I kick and I see, I'm going to keep kicking. I mean, that's human nature. They, he, he's getting what he wants and they were rewarding right. him for it. Right. And they thought they were disciplining him. And it's not about making, you know, poking fun at the school or, the, or whatever. It's about if that happened in my everyday life, if I didn't challenge that assumption, who knows what would happen today? It would have been a completely different situation. And then you just go back and reflect, how many times did you hear someone talk about the data and it didn't sound right, but you didn't feel comfortable questioning them or asking them to, you know, state all their assumptions and would it have been different if you did? Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it and also a very good example. So thank you for sharing that very personal story. I appreciate that. I get a kick every time I say it. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shift gears on you a little bit. You mentioned before cloud computing and cloud computing is part of the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. 
And I wanted to touch base on that a little bit more because it's a, a war that's been around a lot and just wanted to get your take on what exactly the fourth industrial revolution is. Automation, it's big data. It's the the idea that obviously the, the last industrial revolution was, was using like steam engines and using robotics mm-hmm. coming out to computers. And now with artificial intelligence and machine learning, and if you're familiar with IoT, Internet of Things, it, it's how everything is interconnected. And we're two things, we're producing massive amounts of data. Um, and to some extent, we're also using automation to make decisions on what we should do. So you see like driverless cars, like they're making the decision for you. Um, you see businesses saying, should I give this individual a loan or not? They're you know, using not a black box, but they're using AI and machine learning to make those decisions. So the fourth industrial revolution is how we're leveraging all of this data combined with automation and AI to help us make these decisions. But again, you don't want to leave the decision to automation because you're, uh, the, the artificial intelligence doesn't have empathy. It doesn't have emotional intelligence. It doesn't have critical thinking. It can't challenge that assumption. If we had you know, the AI going to that school meeting, it wouldn't have known to say, well, that's an incorrect assumption. And so as much as the fourth industrial revolution is revolutionizing everything because everyone has access to data, everyone can make better decisions with data now. At the same time, it's, it's also reverting back to the older days where those human skills are more important than ever because we need to balance those out. So there's some concerns people say people are losing jobs to automation. The fourth industrial revolution is, is, is causing that, but it's not because we still need the humans to apply those soft skills. We still need to challenge those assumptions. We still need to train the artificial intelligence. Um, and we still need to use those, those soft skills as we're building those models out. So really big buzzword. Long story short, it's just the evolution of using data to make decisions in my mind, but even more so why we need to have data literacy and we need to have a revisiting of soft skills. With the soft skills, clearly now that's something humans need to do. But do you think over time, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, there will be some sort of intelligence to understand and use soft skills? I don't know, right? I mean, I know that sci-fi and they talk about those and, and maybe it has some level of consciousness. That would be really cool. But I don't know if it can ever replace the soft skills and the questioning. Uh, I, I guess time will tell, but that's my that's my hope and theory now is you'll always need the humans to, to do that. You'll always need us to, to train the data before it goes into a model. You'll always need us because you don't want it to be a black box. And, and unfortunately, when you don't use human intervention, what can happen with machine learning and artificial intelligence is it can decide, well, I'm not going to give this loan out. And turns out maybe you weren't giving that loan out for a reason that was unethical. Like you're stereotyping a region or a population or a demographic. And then the more that the machine and the automation declines it, the larger it hurdle it comes to, to overcome that because now you see the lot the large population have all been declined. It just continues to do that. You need that human to step in and say that that's not an ethical decision to make. Let's rewrite the model or let's reintroduce some other practices. I can't see how we could never not need that. Checks and balances, I guess. Yeah. So it's a little bit of 
data analysis, perhaps in some cases, a lot more empathy, a lot more soft skills, depending on the situation. Exactly. And I guess the summary is, is the AI in some cases, like with that example of who do you default on, who do you give loans to, it, it might make the best scientific data decision, but it's not applying ethics to it. Whether we just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Right. Because you can do something doesn't mean that it's an ethical decision. Exactly. And that's a whole nother conversation for a different yeah. podcast. <laughs> exactly. I just, I can't see computers taking ethics training courses. I, it's just, I don't see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, bit beyond. Now you recently wrote a book called turning data into wisdom. Correct. Or maybe it's data. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll get to that later, but data, same. <laughs> but what was the inspiration behind you putting this together? It actually is a, just follows on to what I said before is I, you know, I work in the training organization. We teach people how to use software, but there's so many times where I'm teaching them how to use software and it gets to the point. It's like, okay, you follow these 52 steps in the lab and then the bar chart turns green and everyone's mm-hmm. excited. And then I, I t- I'm like, what did you learn? And they're like, well, I learned if I did these 52 steps, the light's going to turn green. I get excited. I'm like, but what did that really do? And they're like, I don't know what was supposed to do. I'm like, well, why did you want the bar chart? And they're like, I don't know. My boss told me to build one. I'm like, well, mm. they didn't tell you to build a bar chart. They must've said something. And, and so it kind of got me thinking that there is this gap, right? This data literacy that just because people have access to the software doesn't mean they have the right mindsets to work with data and challenge data. And then when it first started coming out, data literacy as a buzzword, people were thinking it was all about data science. Like we need more predictive analytics. We need more prescriptive analytics. We need more data scientists. Um, And I was really passionate that it's a balance. You can have the right analytics, like the example with my son, but if you don't have the right critical thinking, if you don't challenge the data, if you don't think systemically, you're going to come out with the wrong answer. And so the book is kind of a process that we can follow in work, but also at home of how we can clearly identify what we're trying to do, what the problem, what the question is, how do we frame it? How do we make sure we're getting the right data? And again, data is not numbers or data. It's not numbers, it's information. It's qualitative just as much as quantitative. And once we come up with an insight, how do we challenge that and check that it's the scientific method, right? In, In science, you come up with a hypothesis, you do everything in your power to disprove it. When you can't disprove it, you assume it's true. In business, we come up with a hypothesis unconsciously. We find a data point like, aha, I was right. There's the data. We don't challenge it. We don't use that scientific method in business. And so the, that was the passion is I was tired of seeing people have confirmation bias and just say, here's the answer. I'm like, that's not the answer at all. You're not thinking about it systemically. So it kind of put me on a path of let's write about how the, the typical person who might not be a data scientist, might not even be a data analyst, can use data and data and information to increase their decision-making. Well, talking about the scientific process, you also have a six-step process in your book around data. Can you yeah, talk so about that, that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So that is the, um, what the, the, I wanted it to be systemic and systematic. So systemic means we are thinking about the problem holistically. The opposite of that is working in a silo. So I don't want the process to be, 
I make my team look better, but the rest of the team just falls to the wayside. Like it's got to be the, the yin and the yang. So that's the systemically. And the systematic means we need a process that we can follow every time for consistency. If I do one thing on one day and I do something else on another day and I do something else on a third day, I'm not being consistent. I'm not going to get the right outcomes. It's all about consistency. So the, the way I thought to do that was build a model that gives people the framework and the governance of what do I do through the, the, those six steps. So again, the first one is identifying the problem, identifying the, the question, what am I trying to solve? So for example, someone might say, I wanna know how my sales are doing. You've identified nothing at that point. That's where it starts. So you have to ask, well, what do you mean by sales? Clarify it. Do, what time frame are you looking for? Are you saying compared to last year, compared to last quarter? What does good look like? What is your target supposed to be? And that could spin off four or five or six other questions that I'm asking. Then you move into the second phase, which is acquire. And that's how you look at the problem systemically. Do I have the right data? So with the example of my son, I, I got to that phase. I'm like, what am I missing? I'm missing timestamps. I think the day of the week and I think the time of the day are relevant. So let's get those in. In a business world, well, if the premise is my sales are down, I want to slice that across different channels. Is it digital versus in-store? I want to slice it through demographics. Is it just the West Coast or the East Coast or Europe? And then many times people look at the data and they only look at quantitative. They're not looking at surveys, unstructured data. They're not looking at focus groups. They're not looking at data that comes from outside orgs, like what's happening in the overall economy. If the answer the question is, why are our sales down? It might have nothing to do with our organization, it might have to do with the economy, which is external to us. Then we go into the third, which is analytics. So making sure you apply the right KPIs and the right analytics and statistics. And then you go into the apply, which is it's, okay, let's use the scientific method. Let's mm -hmm. tease out all the assumptions. Let's make sure we're not using any bias. And then last two, finally, you go to announce. So it's about storytelling with the data, understanding your stakeholders. And then I'm a huge fan of continuous improvement. So the last step is assess. Once you do it, how well was it? What did you learn from the results? And how do you flow that back into the process to make it iterative? Got it. That's it's very involved. But I, I like the last piece with the assess. You keep iterating on the process and trying to make it better each time you're working through it. Yeah, you see some organizations and some individuals that have analysis paralysis, right? They'll never uh -huh. make a decision. And then by the time they do, the questions change. It's too late. And then you have some that just go really quick. And the, the whole assess is you're never going to have enough data and information to be 100% certain. It doesn't work that way. But what is the right level of let's go forward and let's have structure in place so that we can learn and adjust? And that's why assess is important is I'm a huge fan of let's, let's do it as fast as we can using this process. And then let's take the data and learn from it and do a version two, like almost instantly after based off what we learned. Cause I would think that for some companies or some projects, maybe let's say an R squared value of 0.7 is sufficient, but for others, it may be 0.9 and exactly. perhaps people don't look at different R values under different scenarios and they're just stuck at one number. So something that could be done should be done, but it could also go the other way. And then nothing happens. Nothing advances. 
Absolutely. And then I'll, I'll even throw a third in there too, where you have some people now have access to data and decisions and they have their data scientists come up with their, their R values or their probabilities, and then they make a decision and then it doesn't work out. And they go back to the data science team like, well, you told me we should do this. And we're like, no, 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 nothing is a hundred percent. We said there was like a 90% probability this would happen. You fell into the 10%. That's not wrong. It's just, it, it's all about get bet, you know, betting and predicting. And I think there's a big portion of the population that thinks statistics is this is a hundred percent. I've never seen a statistic that's hundred percent. It's always going to have some level of probability and they just don't realize that because they don't have the data literacy training. Right. I mean, the only thing certain in life are death and taxes, right? Exactly. And change. <laughs> I throw change in there. Death, taxes, and change is what I said. <laughs> but no, in terms of just thinking of stats at 100%, I think it's because there's like a lot of linear thinking out there yeah. and not probabilistic. Exactly. And I think that's where people get stuck in. It's either zero or 100. There's nothing in between. Absolutely. We see that a lot. And it's actually something we've written about a couple of times is you know, we're living in a world where technology is growing exponentially. So, you, you know, the, the speed and the power of the microprocessors, but everything is growing exponentially, but our brains are hardwired to think linearly. And you look at the organizations, it's hard to do that, but you almost have to project what's going to happen before it's happened. You look at like Airbnb, who would have thought 10 years ago, we're going to be the largest hotel chain and not own any houses or, or build buildings or is with Uber. They're thinking exponentially, but it's, it's the exception. It's not the norm. And I think that's another soft skill, right? Is, is learning how to go beyond that because technology is allowing us to do it exponentially. But what's hindering us is our linear thinking. Like you said, yeah. uh, I think the Airbnb story is incredible. That's what they've done. Yeah. And not only from a, a nonlinear fashion, but just, an ability for people to travel and go places that maybe they never were able to travel to before because there's so many more options for people to stay and go. And exactly. Awesome. Well, I have one last question that I ask all my guests. Do you say data or data? I say data, but what's interesting is I've changed sometimes where I hear the other person speak it the other way and I'll flip in the conversation unintentionally um, just so I feel like I fit in, but I, I grew up saying data and I heard you said data. So I think if you play the recording back, I probably said um, both of them a couple of times because I switched based off what you were saying, I think. It doesn't matter to me. I've, I've actually had people tell me that it could be plural or singular and that totally blew my mind. So <laughs> I've never heard that before. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, but <laughs> that's crazy. Got it. Got it. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for Likewise, being on the show. This is fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. To become a member, sponsor, donor, or podcast guest, please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org.